A trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hello there and welcome to the show. I'm glad you could join us today. I got a lot of great information. Now, whether you listen to it all, that's up to you, but I'm glad you at least, uh, you know, clicked play or, you know, uh, logged into the uh, app on which you're listening or happened to catch me on the radio. A lot of different ways to get the message out these days. I'm very grateful for that. Uh, by the way, can I can I give you a, a complaint about a first world problem? Um at the same time, I'm expressing gratitude for the technology that allows me to reach out across multiple platforms with what I hope is a, a message of encouragement and uh, maybe a little bit of truth and light for those who are into that kind of thing. I also uh, am recognizing, man, when the Internet goes down, when, it, when, when it's spotty, it's a huge frustration. I, uh, in addition to my own program, I also produce podcasts for other great people uh, across, well, across the country. There's, you know, that's, this is the beauty of the technology. I can connect with people from very distant places. was actually talking with a couple of uh, Young Voices contributors from the UK earlier this week. Fascinating stuff. But my internet kept popping on and off. And when you have a digital connection, you can probably see where that would be a little bit frustrating. Um, so I'm I'm doing my best not to use sailor language on my computers. I'm resetting my router. What is going on here? And just about the time I was ready to, uh, you know, raise the white flag and say, okay, I give up. <laughs> it's just not working. My kids come inside. It's spring break. And they're like, hey, what's the Comcast van doing out there? <laughs> yeah, I named them by name, but... Uh, um, I was a little bit frustrated, but sure enough, somebody was out there working on, uh, I guess, not just our internet, but the internet for the neighborhood, and th that was it. So, thank you, Mr. Comcast or Xfinity Technician. Um, I, I had some pretty interesting curses all lined up and ready to go for your company, but thanks for fixing it. Knock on wood, everything seems to be going well. And, taking advantage of that, let's dive into the show. One of the most positive developments that I have seen here lately is the undeniable drop in COVID cases in states that are fully open. States like Texas and states like Florida. I'm talking pretty populous states. And I've heard a number of people, including myself, say, see, this is how federalism works. Because other states like New Jersey and California and others that still have fairly stringent lockdown you know, policies in place, they are not doing as well as Texas and, and others. In fact, I think it was Dr. Fauci himself was pretty stumped this week. I can't explain why the cases in Texas are dropping so precipitously when, in fact, they've lifted all the, all the bans and all the mandates that, uh, that were there. So, yeah, I was thinking, this is good. See, some states handled it differently. And, and truth be told, I think what we're seeing right now is evidence that uh, the, the vestiges of federalism that we're seeing um, yeah, in fact, they do seem to be working, but they should have been part of the solution all along. And John Tamney, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research, AIER.org, has a really solid take on this. He says, imagine if a year ago, 
U.S. states had been left free to craft 50 different responses to the rapidly spreading coronavirus. Now, that right there is going to make some people concerned. Why would we want them to all have different responses? I mean, this this is dangerous. Everybody needs to be on the same page. Do they? John Tamney says, if so, it's it's not unreasonable to speculate that uh, lockdowns, due to the extent to, to the extent that they were imposed, would have been lifted with great rapidity if the states had been free to craft different responses. Now he says, but wait, some will say states were already autonomous, and to make their case, they'll point back to April of last year, with fear of the virus at a high. And with then-President Donald Trump having proclaimed his power over the U.S. states as absolute, governors acted as they saw fit. So soon enough, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp showed Trump where power resided by reopening the peach state. Now, notable about Kemp's decision was how much New York Governor Andrew Cuomo disagreed. See, he thought Kemp, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, and others were playing politics and risking deaths in the worst way. Takes one to know one, right, Cuomo? In Cuomo's words, you told the people of your state and you told the people of this country, White House, don't worry about it. Just open up. Go about your business. This is all democratic hyperbole. Different states, different governors, different approaches, yet New York remained shuttered. So fast forward to March of this year, and it was Texas Governor Greg Abbott who ended mask mandates in the Lone Star State. And President Joe Biden famously described the lifting of restrictions as being informed by Neanderthal thinking. Alas, Biden, like Trump, lacked the ability to force Abbott to retreat from his decision. So John Tamney asks the question, was this state's rights at work? 50 states operating independently as laboratories in response to the virus? He says on its face it sounds right, but such elation ignores what really happened. And I'm going to ask you to brace yourself. I had to as well because there's, this was kind of a bitter pill of truth. But here, here goes. He says, in truth, last year reminded us how cripplingly powerful the federal government is. Its power proved disastrous for all manner of workers and businesses. See, the reality is the states weren't nearly as autonomous as they were supposed to be. Evidence supporting the previous claim has been the lockdowns themselves. In a truly federalist system, they would likely have ended long ago. And they would have... Because, as is well known, the states that impose the most stringent restrictions have also suffered the worst job losses, and their businesses have been impaired the most. That they've suffered is a statement of the obvious. John Tamney says, Rare is the business that can shut down or operate at 25% capacity for even a few weeks, let alone many months. The stringent limits foisted on the citizens of blue states like California, New York, and Illinois were economic death sentences of sorts. But then so were the less restrictive limits imposed by states like Texas, Florida, and Georgia. And he says to believe otherwise is to believe that pre-virus businesses structured themselves with abundant and unnecessary spare capacity just because, as opposed to having done so with profits in mind. In which case, he says it's worth imagining what the virus response from states would have been if the federal government had, for all intents and purposes, done nothing out of deference to states' rights. If so... It's a safe bet that the response from Governors Newsom, Cuomo, and Pritzker would have resembled that of Governors Abbott, DeSantis, and Kemp. And the response of red state governors would have more resembled that of South Dakota Governor Christy Noem, who never imposed restrictions in the first place. 
Absent a federal response, lockdowns of the kind Americans endured would have been an impossibility for states precisely because it was the federal government itself that subsidized the lockdowns. Okay, this is the part where the truth starts getting painful. Lest we forget, John Tamney reminds us the federal stimulus response to the virus didn't begin with President Biden swearing in as our 46th president. In truth, it began in the spring of 2020 when President Trump signed a $2.9 trillion emergency spending bill meant to cushion the blow of massive job loss and bankrupt or business bankruptcy, rather. Generous unemployment benefits, paycheck protection program, they're just two examples of the federal response that made it possible for the unemployed to get by and for dying businesses to remain afloat. Sadly, it was never asked whether the federal government had the power to intervene so substantively in response to the coronavirus. But it's worth asking once again, what would have happened had President Trump and Republicans, often deferential to states' rights in rhetoric, properly removed the federal government as a factor? John Tamney says, if so, it's pretty safe to say that the most restrictive states would have had to end their lockdowns long ago. Really, what choice would they have had? Lockdowns of any kind of length would have resulted in unemployment and bankruptcy, and the latter would have quickly forced the hands of governors. Except that their hands weren't forced thanks to a multi-trillion dollar federal cushion that most certainly distorted state responses. Federal meddling enabled local responses that never could have happened without federal largesse. To which some will say, well, thank goodness the federal government stepped in to support muscular state reactions. Lockdown saved lives. Oh, well, he says, wise minds can debate the latter. But what they can't debate is that before the lockdowns began, Americans were already adjusting, already traveling less, eating out less, and generally being more careful. People generally don't require state force to avoid illness or death. And since they don't, Americans had already changed their habits substantially well before March of 2020. Crucial about what Americans were doing is that their decisions were arrived at freely, Hundreds of millions of Americans trying different approaches to the virus. And this was ideal because free people produce information about what causes a virus to spread, what behavior is most consistent with slower spread, and also what's consistent with the worst health outcomes. He says applied to businesses rather than one-size-fits-all solutions, the fear that reigned in spring of 2020 called for businesses to try different approaches, including full shutdown for some of the bigger ones that feared brand risk. How's that for a slightly different take on things? The main thing is the Fed, the lockdowns deprived us of information, our jobs, and of economic growth, and this was a consequence of federal action. I've got a link to the article in today's show notes. You can check them out at thebrianheidshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I really hope you like the article I shared in the last segment from John Tamney from the American Institute for Economic Research. I just love it. He makes a very strong case that, yeah, what we saw in terms of how the states responded to the coronavirus was distorted because the federal government stepped in and financially was subsidizing certain things for the states. And, you know, he says, you know, as opposed to deferring to the states, the federal government acted in size fashion, thus making the life, economy, and freedom-wrecking lockdowns all the more stringent, all the while 
elongating them. This is where he says, when we needed the genius of states' rights the most, that's when panicky politicians trampled on them. So here's hoping a strategy that was so inimical to knowledge, health, and economic vitality is not attempted again. By the way, if you haven't subscribed to AIER.org, consider this uh, a strong suggestion on my part. It would be worth your time to do so, especially if you are trying to get good, solid, analytical information on uh, the COVID responses. Look, you don't have to become, you know, an epidemiologist in order to understand, you know, cause and effect. But I think they have done the best job of principled opposition to these highly destructive lockdown policies, as well as uh, measuring very honestly what happens when, you know, countries like Sweden, for instance, refuse to take on those stringent mandates and stringent lockdowns compared to countries that lock it down hard almost uh, tyrannically. Pretty interesting stuff. It's great to have these resources available, AIER.org. Every day, you'll have some great information landing in your email inbox. All right, shifting gears. You know, once upon a time, I would have vigorously defended many, if not all, of the corporations who today are somehow becoming our new woke vanguard. And I would have done it strictly on the property rights principle. Well, these are private businesses. They have a right to do whatever they want. Now, understand what I'm saying here. I'm not saying, "Ah, I disagree with what they're doing right now, so government should step in and fix them. I think there's a little more complicated than that. But to the extent that these companies, and I mean the big woke corporations, are using their influence and their power to decide who gets to borrow money, who doesn't, whose banking will we handle and won't based on their woke dogma. That's pretty dangerous. I mean, when you see uh, companies drumming people out of their jobs for an, an innocent social media post that somehow crosses the line today in our supremely woke environment versus, you know, even just a few weeks ago when something was very innocuous. I mean, for crying out loud, if you were to post today holding a picture of an old, uh, you know, Aunt Jemima syrup bottle, I mean, you could, you could be innocently saying, I really love this syrup. This is good stuff. I would take this over pure Canadian maple syrup any day. By the way, I wouldn't, because that's, that's, that's really the good stuff. But that would have been seen as just something innocent. Somebody holding up a syrup bottle and smiling, okay, so you like syrup. Today, oh, that's a racist, oh, that's a total hateful move. Why? Because somehow in the last few months, Aunt Jemima has been deemed racist. And this is just one small example of many things that suddenly, they're no longer acceptable. The goalposts are constantly moving. That is a feature, not a bug, of this system of thought. The idea is you and I need to be kept off balance and kept defensive and wondering, is it okay to think this? Is it okay to think that? Do you see where that leads? Essentially, we're expected to turn to those who are the commissars of wokeness to appeal to them. Is it okay for me to think this or to, to say this? Which is another way of saying, may I have your permission to think something? Does that sound like something a free man or woman would do? I don't think so. So where I would have vigorously defended these corporations once before, today I'm like, wow, they're doing the dirty work that censors in government would like to do, but they know they'd be rightly called out on it. So there's the plausible deniability, well, you know, so you're being deplatformed and you're being, you know, shunted off to the margins of society. But, hey, it's not government that's doing it. It's private businesses. 
so therefore it must be okay. Until you stop to think, to what extent are these private businesses the recipients of favored policies on the part of government? Oh, does that sound too conspiratorial? Let me just come right out and say it. You don't get to be a big, huge, supremely successful company without crawling into bed with government at some level. You just don't. You have to partner with the powers that be. Um, it's, sometimes it's about money. More often it's just about influence and power. And this is something we're seeing play out for us in, in a huge way today. So I, I found an interview with Doug Casey that has some very helpful historical perspective on how uh, so-called ESG companies, that's environmental, social, and governance companies, are becoming de facto enforcers of politically correct dogma. They are doing the dirty work of people in government who would like to force us to toe a certain ideological line, but still can't quite get around, you know, the First Amendment and, and other amendments that limit the scope of their action. Doug Casey reminds us that a tsunami of political correctness is washing over the entire world. And by the way, it's not just the U.S., and it didn't just arise spontaneously in a vacuum. So here's some of the historical perspective of where did all of this come from? Doug Casey says, the first time I ever heard the term politically correct was in a Saturday Night Live skit back in the early 80s. And he said, at the time, I thought it was just a funny catchphrase. It sounded like a takeoff on the Soviet term, politically unreliable, which was used to describe those who weren't dogmatic communist ideologues. However, it turned out to be an indicator of a much broader trend, one that got underway in the 1960s, and it started in the universities. Three generations of people have gone to college since the 1960s. In those days, attending college was relatively rare, only around 10% of the youth. It was less than 5% in the previous era. But now it's quite common with over a third of Americans getting degrees. Doug Casey says in those days, college was actually supposed to be about learning something tangible. Either subjects about the natural world, science, medicine, engineering, and the like, or humanities, literature, history, philosophy, and the like. There was always a divide between the two categories, of course. Sciences were hard and required diligent work with verifiable data, whereas the humanities were soft, largely the province of opinion and interpretation. Now, he says, both disciplines have degraded, however. Even math is now considered too white, and the humanities have morphed into indoctrination. College professors, and he says, and I speak as someone who was a trustee of the 10th oldest college in the country for five years, are now almost all woke. Full of social justice warriors, they're declared Marxists. It means about 93% of faculty members vote Democrat. Not that voting Republican necessarily means you support principles that have much to do with either free minds or free markets. But Doug Casey says, I'm afraid that the battle for the hearts and minds of America is basically over. The progressives, socialists, Marxists, and their fellow travelers have won the intellectual and moral battle. And this loss is being reinforced by the media with their biased reporting, and the corporations with their woke ads and entertainers with their highly politicized skits and shows. I'm just going to pause here for a moment and ask you, does that kind of give you an uneasy feeling in your stomach? It does me too. And I think the reason it does is because I think he's right. I think, uh, I, th- I think that particular battle has been won, and it was not won by the side of freedom. Doug Casey says, going back to the analogy of a battle, the left initially fought a guerrilla war. 
In recent years, they've grown strong enough to win set-piece battles. Now they have nearly complete control of the state apparatus, and they won't let go of it. Their next step is just to mop up the resistance. And again, as an aside, why do you think there was such a drastic move the moment that Biden took office to consolidate power and to make sure that even even now, you know, that what is it, the uh, For the People Act, to put into law and to put into, you know, uh, the legally protected status all the different techniques and things that were used to make sure they got the outcome they wanted in this last election. And no, I don't, I don't believe for a moment that uh, this was a fully honest election. That doesn't mean necessarily that I know for a fact it was stolen. I'm just saying there was some pretty hinky stuff and there were no good answers other than shut up and don't talk about that. Everything's fine. I'm going to come back to Doug Casey's commentary here in just a few moments. Please stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I am in the midst of some very painful truth right now, courtesy of Doug Casey. I picked up this article on lewrockwell.com. That's L-E-W rockwell.com. This is another one of those great resources for wrong thinkers that I strongly recommend. There is not a day goes by that I don't check out Lou Rockwell and just see what different articles they have posted. Lots of different articles. They have running uh, commentaries on the Lou Rockwell blog and another feature called Political Theater where they cover pretty much everything politics. But it's a great way to get a number of different points of view. And it's free. It just takes your time and a willingness to, to sit down and examine these points of view and see if, if they're something that can better your life or better your understanding. Doug Casey is talking about the rise of woke companies and ESG investing. Now, ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance Mandates. And this is something companies have started to pick up on. So when you hear me talk about ESG, Environmental, Social, and Governance, And by the way, these mandates are being enforced everywhere and very directly. Doug says one problem with ESG is it sounds so positive. I mean, come on, who doesn't want a clean environment? Who's opposed to social harmony instead of race war? Isn't it better to have some governance as opposed to the straw man of road warrior style chaos? But he says the reality is that ESG mandates, mandate uh, managements, uh, redirect corporate resources from creating new wealth and satisfying consumer demands to instead implementing the semi-religious charities of a new green religion. And to keep them on the path to righteousness, corporate boards now have to include women, people of color, a newly minted, aggrieved group, and those with psychological and sexual aberrations, which, by the way, the, the way these things are dictated amounts to actively transgressing against men, whites, and normals. It's a new form of class warfare. And yes, that's, that's a part and parcel of Marxism. He says the fact that companies are bending over backwards to show how ESG conscious they are, how woke they are, how respectful of SJW values they are, social justice warrior values, says that they aren't concentrating on taking care of business and making profits. Putting virtue signaling first is a very bad sign for productivity and business. So now that ESG has got a seat at the table, it's opened the door to the next stage of this trend, which is equity, diversity, and inclusion, or EDI. 
And like ESG, it sounds friendly and welcoming, but it's not. There is no equality except before the law and in the grave. Trying to make people equal is stupid and counterproductive. But he says equity is even worse than enforced equality because it means giving certain groups privileges and assets by virtue of ethnicity, gender, disability, or accident of birth. And that is a formula for hatred and resentment. Diversity boils down to race and gender, and it certainly doesn't include a diversity of viewpoints. In fact, the diversity movement, if anything, is known for its uniformity of thought. And that is very counterintuitive to what you would expect to find in a truly free society. Now, Doug Casey says inclusion has a place in polite society, but it has to be earned, like any other privilege. In fact, there's more to be said for exclusivity than inclusivity. Exclusivity is about maintaining standards, as are, for instance, private clubs. Maybe that's why we see so few private clubs these days. If a club doesn't include practically everyone and anyone, well, it's asking for a lawsuit in today's world. These notions, he says, will backfire on their promoters and enforcers. Many people of color are diversity hires now. As a result, many in the public, including people of color, will go out of their way to avoid black doctors, lawyers, and engineers because they're wondering whether or not they're truly qualified. Affirmative action devastates the very people it's supposed to help as it degrades them and breeds resentment. This is all real poison because it identifies people not as individuals, but as members of a group. Doesn't that sound a lot like what racism does? It tends to label people just as part of a group rather than as individuals. I think you see the point here. So how will this cultural shift affect the competitiveness competitiveness of U.S. companies? Well, Doug Casey says virtue signaling and wokeness are affecting every aspect of life. He says one reason that the companies in the old Soviet Union were so unproductive and turned out such crappy products was they were much more interested in being politically reliable than profitable. Being politically correct today encourages people to sign up for things like gender studies, sociology, and political science today rather than science, technology, and math. It's a real cultural shift working to destroy the competitiveness of U.S. companies and is supercharged by the fact actual Bolsheviks now control the government. It's Mussolini's dream where government and corporations are walking hand-in-hand in in a so-called public-private partnership. Classical fascism. And by the way, that is the correct use of that term. There's more to this article, but I'm going to leave you to discover that for yourself. You'll find it in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. These are show notes for April 8th, 2021. Fascinating stuff here. And Doug goes into some, some really great detail, but that's one of the best explanations I have yet read as to where this ESG, environmental, social, and governance mindset, is coming from. All right, I want to shift gears now, and uh, this is one of the reasons I do what I do, is uh, I want to help people find their way through the blizzard of misinformation and disinformation that's blasting at us pretty much around the clock. Now, by saying that, that's not any indication that I have all the answers, and if you just hang on every word I say, you're going to be just fine, because I don't have all the answers, clearly. But I'm definitely a guy who's looking for ways to sift Fact from fiction and truth from error. Found a remarkable article from Annie Holmquist. This was published on intellectualtakeout.org. 
And again, this is one of these uh, aggregator sites with lots of different commentaries from a lot of different contributors. I, it's part of my daily quest for truth. I like to see what they have. Her headline is looking beyond headlines to outsmart the propagandists. So Annie Holmquist says, The trial of Officer Derek Chauvin came up in a conversation I had with a friend this weekend. Yeah, I really haven't been able to follow it much, but I did see a few headlines was the essence of her friend's comments on the issue. And then he noted that the little he had seen made him think that Chauvin's prospects really weren't all that bright. At this point, Annie Holmquist said, Oh, really? I've got a different idea. Now, her friend began to question her about what she had heard, so she began sharing with him the various testimonies she had watched and the new facts of the case that she had learned through viewing that. In fact, she shared some daily synopsis of the trial as broken down by attorney Andrew Branca, Branca rather, on legal insurrection. Interestingly, the resumption of the trial this week found Branca making the same observation as his friend, and she did, namely that the tidbits of the trial making the sensational headlines tell a vastly different story than the one that's really playing out. This has become a common pattern in this case, Branca observes, noting the carefully prepared state's witness is carefully questioned by the state to elicit headline-worthy quotes. But then it's ultimately revealed on cross-examination that those quoted opinions were based on extremely limited information, lacked context of the full circumstances, and were gutted on cross-examination as a result. Now, Annie says, but the general public doesn't realize they're just getting a very narrow view of the case from the media. And this pattern of only reporting one side of the story is dangerous. Branca notes, because while the jury will hear both sides and be able to make a well-informed opinion, the public will not. He says the public, especially the public willing to riot, loot, and arson, arson must be a verb by now, right, is however hearing just the narrative of guilt in this case. And that means anything other than a guilty verdict can only come as a complete shock to their sense of justice and therefore a complete justification of any terror they wish to bring to bear to the public generally. End quote. Branca suggests this will leave the media with some of the blame should riots ensue if Chauvin is acquitted. But Annie Holmquist says this isn't the only time we've seen this kind of story play out. Just the other day, 60 Minutes aired a story about Florida Governor Ron DeSantis alleging underhanded dealings with Publix, supermarket chain, for vaccine distribution efforts in the state. The 60-minute segment, however, eliminated much of DeSantis's fact-based answer, making for a much more incriminating story, a situation for which both Democratic officials and the Publix company called the longstanding news program to task. These examples are clear instances of propaganda. Political philosopher Richard Weaver outlined this form of propaganda in his 1948 book, Ideas Have Consequences. Only at the time, he framed this propaganda as the work of public relations offices, which seek to puff their corporate heads. Quote, new institutions, I'm sorry, more institutions of every kind are coming to feel that they cannot permit an unrestricted access to news about themselves. So what they do is they simply set up an office of publicity in which writers skilled in propaganda prepare the kinds of stories those institutions wish to see circulated. Now, he says, inevitably, this organization serves at the same time as an office of censorship, de-emphasizing or withholding entirely news which would be damaging to prestige. It's easy, of course, to disguise such an office as a facility created to keep the public better informed, but it does not alter the fact that where interpretation counts, Control of source is decisive, end quote. I'm going to come back to Annie Holmquist's article here in a few moments, but I want you to think about what, uh, what that quote just described. Does that not describe some of the biggest, uh, not just uh, institutions, but churches and, and other organizations 
who have a public relations office whose job is, hey, no matter what, make us look good. Hey, there's nothing wrong with looking good, but it's the no matter what part that's a little bit disturbing. And that's where you and I have to be on our toes. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. We may not be the biggest audience in history, but I'd wager you are among one of the best informed audiences. Not because I have all the answers, but because I have access to tremendous writers and resources like Annie Holmquist from intellectualtakeout.org. I'm sharing her article, Looking Beyond Headlines to Outsmart the Propagandists. Now, in the last segment, she had a quote from uh, the book Ideas Have Consequences by political philosopher Richard Weaver, in which he talks about PR puffing, public relations puffing, which allows you know these, these public relations offices to censor, to de-emphasize, or even withhold entirely news which would be damaging to the prestige of whomever they represent. And Annie says, we see the same type of work being done today, only this time the PR puffing is accomplished by the media. And it's always on behalf of progressive, woke organizations like Black Lives Matter or ideas such as critical race theory or policies relating to defunding the police. She says, if the media can act as an office of censorship, de-emphasizing or withholding entirely, News which would be damaging to the prestige of these various favored woke theories, ideas, and courses of action under the guise of keeping the public better informed, then how can we maneuver our way through life making sure we know the truth and are not just being taken in by propaganda? And Weaver supplies the answer in a separate essay entitled Responsible Rhetoric. Weaver writes, Coping with propaganda requires a widespread critical intelligence. Now, Annie says, sadly, such intelligence is acquired from a good education system, which Weaver admitted was not that great, even in the mid-20th century when he penned those words. To remedy this poor education system and the citizens subsequently, to remedy this uh, poor education system and the citizens' uh, subsequently poor intelligence, Weaver says we must teach responsible rhetoric. This is how he describes it. Quote, responsible rhetoric, as I conceive it, is a rhetoric responsible primarily to the truth. It employs a degree of validity in a statement, and it is aware of the sources of controlling that it employs. As such, it is distinct from propaganda, which is a distortion of the truth for selfish purposes. End quote. That's a great definition, by the way. Annie Holmquist says, instances of propaganda are likely to increase in frequency going forward. If we want to avoid being taken in by propaganda, then we must become individuals who dig beyond headlines in order to hear the real story and discern the truth. She is so incredibly right. If I weren't sitting comfortably in my chair, I would stand up and actually give her a standing ovation for this. No, I think she's, she's dead on. And this is where you separate, you know, the, the truth seekers from the people who are more comfortable parroting whatever, you know, fits their preferred uh, worldview. The truth seekers are willing to dig. They're willing to confront truths that are uncomfortable, that, that push them up against the limits of their mental universe. You ever notice how many people get angry when they encounter something that uh, doesn't fully jive with what they already believe to be true? 
I'm just saying that uh, that's not the sign of a person who's sincerely looking for truth. It takes courage to do this. And I'm not saying, oh, yeah, and so therefore, you know, it's very easy. Once you get that courage, you just bravely plow on. Sometimes uh, confronting truth is, is a very terrifying experience because it means you have to reevaluate things that you may have uh, held on to as true for a very long time. And the idea isn't that, oh, I must reject everything that came before because I may have been wrong on this. It's simply that you have to expand your worldview and your perspective as you incorporate that new truth. And yes, it does take courage. But the only thing I can tell you is it's worth it. It's worth it to not be taken in by those propagandists. By the way, I found a great article here from Kent McManigal. I I see his work regularly on everything-voluntary.com. I subscribe to their newsletter. Kent has his own uh, website, and I'll, I'll, in the link that I will supply here in this uh, in this uh, edition of show notes for the BrianHydeShow.com show notes for April eighth, uh, you can click on it, and it will take you to EverythingVoluntary.com. But uh, down at the bottom of the page, you can also access Kent's own website. He's he's really a great thinker, and I love that he presents what he's saying in a very uh, concise, easily digestible form. But I'm going to warn you, this is a power-packed concentrate of intellectual nutrition. He's very good at just saying what needs to be said, and he does not pull his punches. So um, to set up this, this article that I'm going to share with you, or this commentary from Kent McManigal, I know today there's a lot of headlines going around, the President Biden has announced that by executive order he's implementing certain gun control features, and people are, people are haha, up in arms, so to speak, um, over, over some of the things that are coming out of the White House. In fact, a lot of people are kind of discovering an awakening of their inner rebel. Well, Kent McManigal's message here is, go ahead and rebel, but make it responsible. Here's how he puts it. He says, this past year has been hard on liberty. It started with worldwide government overreaction to a pandemic. This was still going strong when some focus shifted to choosing a politician to run your life. Now, recently, as the pandemic hype began to fizzle in many places, and after most of the post-election drama had faded, the push to further violate your natural human right to own and carry weapons was triggered by the horrible crimes of a few evil losers. Making good people helpless won't make bad people harmless. And he says, if it wasn't one thing, it was another. He says, this has probably always been the case, but sometimes it feels worse. And this has been one of those times. Did the past year signal the end of liberty or just put a few more nails in its coffin? Is liberty under greater threat these days or is it only a matter of perception? He says, I hope it's the latter, even though I suspect it's the former. But he says, I plan to pry some of those coffin nails out before it's too late to salvage what we're losing. And he says, I hope you'll help. So the question is, how can this problem be fixed? Most people don't think about liberty very often. It may even scare them if they do. So they won't miss it until it's so far gone it will be hard to win back. This is because liberty is responsibility. And people don't like responsibility. Too many people want to believe someone else is protecting them and doing the thinking so they won't have to. Now he says, I hope you're not among those who, are, who want to be treated like a child, needing round-the-clock supervision and care. But if so... Government is happy to oblige. Ken McManigal says it's easier to control a population of people who won't think for themselves and who feel dependent on you. Those who don't want to be shielded from the real world are a danger to those whose plans require mindless compliance. And the problem is most people comply too quickly. 
So he says it's going to take commitment to win back the liberty that's been lost. Part of that commitment will involve standing against politicians and the legislation they impose. And his advice is to rebel, but rebel responsibly. Meaning, good people never intentionally harm another's life, liberty, or property as a way to show they can think and act for themselves. They rebel only as a way to responsibly exercise their rightful liberty. And then he asks the question, do you have it in you to stand for liberty? I know most of us, at least, uh, you know, in the last year and a half, if you'd asked us this 18 months ago, most of us would have said, absolutely, I have what's in it to stand for liberty. But we've more or less been put to the test, haven't we? Especially over this last year. And, and this is one of the reasons why, um, even though I know many people may misunderstand and, and maybe even uh, take offense that I've been so uh, strongly anti-mask and, and refused at every opportunity to, to put on the mask. It's because I believe it's part of that, that bigger stand for liberty. It's, and, and, and I don't know how to say this other than if I'm not wearing a mask, I'm not condemning you for wearing one. Trust me, it would be so much easier, and it would have been so much easier many times over this last year to simply put on the mask and just go along and, you know, blend in with the crowd. But something in my conscience has spoken to me from the very beginning and just said, you can't do this. You've got to be one of those people who's willing to buck the trend and not put on that face covering. And it's not easy. And I know that uh, there's, there's room for misunderstanding. I've seen people, you know, question, uh, you know, have you lost your faith? Have you, have you lost your, your sanity? Are you just trying to make everything a political statement? And, and trust me when I tell you, I've had to search my own heart to make sure what's my motivation here. I don't want to just do this to, to make everywhere I go, you know, ta-da, here I am, look at me without a mask. I've had to eat humble pie more than a few times because... People didn't understand and, and, and took offense. But I'm confident this was the right thing to do. And even though I've been very much in the minority, as, as many of you have found out for yourselves, when you're following your conscience, even if, if everyone seems kind of uh, aligned against you at the moment, it's not about a victim complex and it's not about, oh, woe is me. It's about I have to be comfortable and at peace with my conscience. Because in the end... When my life is over, and it is going to end someday, my conscience is going to accompany me into whatever comes next. All the people whose approval I have or don't have now, that's not going to matter as much as whether or not I'm on good terms with my conscience. I would rather err on that side than everybody thinking, aren't you a great guy for going along with us? This is The Brian Hyde Show.